Hi, this is Lady C. Hey, and this is JT. Welcome to The Critical Thought. In the upcoming episode, we're going to be talking to an individual that was not a born in and no, he was not raised in, but he came in as an adult to the Jehovah's Witness religion. And he's going to tell you all about the series of events and how he became connected with the Jehovah's Witnesses. You're listening to The Critical Thought, where we challenge our listeners to use critical thinking when examining the teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses. So I want to welcome Dave Wicklin. Well, I'm glad to be here, guys. It's an awesome opportunity to uh, convey my story. Yes, it's, it's really good to finally put a face with the comments. Yeah, and we think everyone's going to enjoy, especially some of the points that you're going to highlight about what your personal experiences have been being involved with the witnesses. Mm-hmm. So, Dave, you want to tell us about how you got connected with Jehovah's Witnesses or learned about this group? Yeah, I was uh, first in uh, grade school. I did have a classmate, uh, unknowingly, who was a Jehovah's Witness. Um, but especially when I was a teenager, uh, I came into contact with Jehovah's Witnesses um, when I was on my way home from school one day, uh, 1989, junior in high school. And... Um, it was a gentleman from the Arab uh, congregation or Arabic group. They've got a lot of different groups uh, within Chicago JW congregations. And we struck up a conversation after I got off the bus. I can't remember exactly what sparked it, but we started talking about world conditions and paradise and, you know, a more ideal place to live and so forth. And I eventually invited him over for, um, what they term as a Bible study. And uh, I had made mention that, you know, I had familiarity slightly with witnesses, past classmate, um, that I really didn't know. He was deeply involved with witnesses as, as in, you know, raised around because he didn't talk about it much. Um, but what little I did know, I conveyed to him. And then we sat down and we had one study out of the, um, you can live forever in paradise on earth book. Um, him and a friend, one of the other JWs came over and, uh, we had that, uh, one initial study. Um, and then I actually had his head where I was very uncomfortable with the way he was communicating with me in the study. Um, and when I picked up on this, um, it, it really kind of drew, an initial line in the sand at that point, at least with me personally and him, um, to where when he returned a week later, I had already told my mom that, you know, I had studied with him, but I wasn't exactly like clicking with him. Um, I didn't want to be rude with him, but she went into mother bear mode. (laughs) And when he came to the door, she literally took the paradise book and like threw it at him. And I was looking from the background. I was like, oh, my goodness, Mom, you didn't have to do like that. So that was my initial contact um, in 1989. And I graduated high school in 1990. I hadn't had any contact with any other witnesses that I knew of. Uh, I started working at a convenience store. I was going to college, uh, junior college, trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life. I was kind of one of those people that didn't really know what my pathway or avenue was or what my passion was to, you know, going forward in the future. 
Um, and on top of that, when growing up, my mom um, had been battling cancer on and off for basically since 1980. Um, so in and out of remission, chemotherapy, um, and then back, you know, to normal. And then the same cycle continued. So by 1992, um, still working at that convenience store. And there's this young lady that used to come in to the store a couple times a week. She would usually buy like a 40 ounce. Um, she was real nice, real quiet, not like typical social butterfly, um, kind of standoffish. And one day after she left, about 15 minutes later, she called me up at the store and she basically was flirting with me and asking, oh, are you that cute guy at the door or at the store? Um, so she basically asked me out and we went out on a date to the, um, mall. Um, she drove went there, went back. She hadn't told me anything about being a Jehovah's witness, um, up to this point. So I had kissed her good night. A couple days went by. I actually called her back up and she was like a totally different person when, uh, talking with her the second time she was like, Dave, to be honest with you, I'm one of Jehovah's witnesses. And I, I guess we really weren't, aren't supposed to date. And, I started probing questions because I was fascinated and I was like, well, I, you guys don't celebrate Christmas, right? He was like, no, we, we don't celebrate holidays or, um, and I started asking her, well, yeah, well, on Christmas, what's the purpose of, of Santa Claus? And he, she was like, yeah, we don't get involved in what we believe are pagan type of activities. And I asked her about Easter. Why do you worship a false Mary that looks like Mona Lisa? I got that out of a rap song. I listened to at one point and questioned her. And she said, well, we don't celebrate that, but we do celebrate the memorial of, of Jesus' death, which had just happened at that time in uh, 1992. Um, and then she basically went on to invite me to the Kingdom Hall. And the first meeting I attended uh, was May 21st of 1992. And yeah, I was attracted to her. I admit I was 20. She was 25. It was kind of flattering uh, to get that attention from you know, an older woman. And at the same time, though, my mom was sick. Um, I was trying to figure out as a young, single, uh, only child what to do with my life. And I was kind of lost for direction in some ways. And the narrative that was starting to be spun to me it seemed to have what they used to call the ring of truth. Um, certain aspects of it at least. And when I went to the Kingdom Hall, I was actually very impressed by uh, the way people were. Uh, it had given me a different perception than what perception I had had, because um, I had heard different things. Oh, they're a sect, they're you know, kind of dangerous, but people were friendly and nice and you know, super jovial. And I didn't know that that was called love bombing in some circles. But uh, that's what I was initially exposed to and uh, gave me the impression that, you know, these are really good people. And I started immediately coming to meetings there basically in the uh, spring and summer of 1992. That's how I initiated contact and kind of got the ball rolling with the witnesses. Wow. Let me ask you a question. 
what was your basic religious background? I mean, were, were your mom and y'all guys going to church? Y'all belonged to any church before uh, you were introduced to the witnesses? I had gone to a Lutheran school for a couple of years. Um, I had, at that point in time, really committed myself to any type of religion. And I had visited different churches, like a Unitarian church, um, uh, several in the neighborhood, um, but nothing formalistic. I hadn't assigned you know a religious affiliation they did baptize me when i was really young from what i understand into unitarian church but yet i went to kindergarten and uh, for a year part of a year of high school at uh, a lutheran high school um, but i didn't really subscribe to those belief systems and a lot of it just didn't make sense to me certain doctrines that they taught um, trinity or um, certain aspects of what i learned just from growing up at that point and kind of researched, it didn't make sense in, in logistics to me. Yeah. Uh, when I was growing up as a kid, in my young adulthood, we used to refer to certain types of religions as weak religions, Lutherans, Presbyterians. You know, those religions weren't really diehard uh, religious uh, based background, strong Bible preachers. And so as witnesses, we just literally just used to run over people who were in those denominations many times, unlike perhaps uh, some of the apostolic type faiths. You would be challenged, at least with the Bible at the door. But people who came from those type of Methodists, they typically had very, very little knowledge of the Bible. And for a witness, that's 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 game on. That's, that's really game yeah. On. So, Dave, how did the uh, love bombing continue? Because I, I remember you telling your story and you talked about how uh, the effect this religion had on you after your mother passed? Well, it wasn't even a month later um, that my mom was uh, back in the hospital, severely sick. Um, I remember my dad carrying, basically, yeah, handling her to the car, and uh, the cancer had come back and jumped into her bones. And um, July 18th, 1992, uh, she passed away. Again, this was 20, so about 28 days after I went to my first Kingdom Hall meeting. Um, so you know what I was primed for at that point. And I actually took to it uh, headlong. Um, the resurrection hope, um, the paradise hope to see my mom again. Um, after all my mom had suffered through 10, 11, 12 years, it was uh, agonizing, and I'm an only child and somewhat of an introvert, even though I had my circle of, of friends you know, that I grew up with. It was uh, very difficult to deal with, and uh, you know, some of us, are, our, our makeups, our personality sensitivities are just such that um, it kind of puts us in a position where we can be you know, primed for this in susceptible and vulnerable situations like this. So I wanted a hope. I mean, I, I, I wanted that security, that peace. Uh, it's only a natural thing that we all want to not lose our, our loved ones, right? And uh, it, it wound up being where <clears throat> that is one of the hooks and anchors that uh, really pulled me uh, towards you know the hope uh, through Jehovah's Witnesses and then gradually through the organization and what it teaches and that's how the gradual enmeshment and entrapment process um, really took hold on me. We, we, you know, Dave, um, and I think you've mentioned that in, in other comments, um, 
the organization takes advantage of people like that. In fact, uh, one of the scriptures that we would often refer to, how that when we go out in field service or when we're out in the ministry, we're looking for certain types of people. And I remember so many circuit overseers, they would often say, well, brothers, we're not looking for everybody. We're only looking for certain types of people. And those are the people who are moaning and groaning over the detestable things going. And so basically, we're looking for people at their lowest point. And yeah, Dave, you had mentioned that um, their hope of resurrection and all that kind of stuff sounded so good to you. And you were in the middle of this love bombing phase. So what other things did the Jehovah's Witnesses do at the time when your mother passed? Well, they actually came to my mom's wake, um, which was surprising how they, you know, they showed up. They even brought some of those tracks, what, what hope for dead loved ones, one of them dead. Um, I interpreted it was just, you know, out of, out of kindness and respect. Here they barely knew me, only, what, 27 days since the first time they met me. And um, they show up, and it, it seemed to me like it was coming across that it was kindness, loving, um, it, it, genuine concern. Um, that's the way I perceived it. And I had a couple of uh, other friends that were there, non-Jehovah's Witnesses, that they kind of noticed them. And they even impressed them as far as how they comported themselves. Um, like, oh, well, we had this view of JWs before, and this kind of like modifies the view a little bit, just in how they were comporting themselves uh, towards me. So that was one of the things right there initially. And that Again, springboarded me into the Bible study, you know, or books, the Watchtower study that they had, um, and continued to perpetuate, you know, what uh, subject matter uh, I was studying, you know, through the Live Forever book, whether it was on hellfire or lack thereof or uh, heaven and how many people go to heaven, different doctrines that... Um, Watchtower, you know, traditionally has, has taught for many, many decades now. Yeah, Dave, and you, you know what, Dave, and you know what too, Dave, um, you had mentioned that you had studied with these two brothers previous. Did you ever think about them when you were getting back into this studying and stuff like that? Because, like, your mom told them, we don't want you here. Now, all of a sudden, you're being introduced to this group in a different way. Did you ever cross paths with those brothers again? I did the Arabic brother because he was in the same circuit, as it turns out. <laughs> I saw him at the convention uh, upcoming that I went to, and he was surprised to see me naturally and basically said, I knew something or something about you, David, you know, that, that was attractive, you know, kind of a thing. Um, and that was basically, you know, the um, relationship I had with him was from a, a distance because he was in a totally different congregation. The study that I had with somebody going forward uh, from 1992 uh, was with somebody locally, um, you know, on a totally different scale. So, but yeah, that, that it did cross my mind. Wow. And then how long did it take you to get baptized after all of these series of events was taking place? Almost two years. Uh, I baptized May 21st of 1994, and that was the same month, in fact, the same weekend that actually we were passing out those Awake magazines that 
uh, were advertising the children of Jehovah's Witnesses that had been martyred uh, or kept their integrity due to the blood doctrine, as was thought of that time in 1994. Believe it or mm-hmm. not. And that was something else at the time I had taken to quite strongly, you know, taken the blood card and so forth uh, and bought into the narrative. There was a brochure that they had uh, entitled, How Can Blood Save Your Life? And that actually, you know, it had all kinds of quotes from supposedly Journal of Medical, American Medical Association and different uh, medical professionals that they used cherry picking wise uh, to, you know, fit their narrative on the blood doctrine and it was right at that time um, i actually got baptized pre-internet wow that is amazing and then what happened to this young lady that you were dating she actually gradually uh stopped going to meetings um she had revealed to me in conversation right before i became an unbaptized publisher i think it was that she was like, be careful around certain brothers because some of them are a little more, you know, coarse and callous. Because um, I was starting to notice some of the personalities and idiosyncrasies some had. He re- she revealed that the one that happened to be the presiding overseer actually called her a B-I-T-C-H. And I was like, what? Him? And she was, I, I could tell she was like really like devastated um, just in conveying this to me, but it was almost like a a red flag to be careful of certain individuals in the congregation. And she started to basically either go to a different meeting, different hall. And I found out by the time I was baptized shortly thereafter, um, she had stopped going to meetings altogether. Um, And it wound up being, about 20 years before I had contact with her again. <laughs> so no relationship ensued uh, with her as far as, you know, romantic or, or thereabouts. My mindset shifted to being uh, much more serious Jehovah's Witness by that point, obviously going to the point of getting baptized even a year before when I was an unbaptized publisher. I was running up and down the stairs of some of these high rises in Chicago and um, you know, showing my dedication and giving talks on a theocratic ministry school and, um, you know, doing the typical advancement that was done at that time there in the early to uh, mid-90s. So basically, uh, you became the Watchtower's version of a high-value man, single man. Exactly. Yeah, you exactly. Yeah. On track, a spiritual pocket. <laughs> he's, going, he's going places. That's exactly right. Amazing. So, yeah, it, it, it really is. So the congregation that you were a part of, was it basically an interracial congregation for the most part? Very diverse. Yeah, we had uh, brothers and sisters from Africa, from Ghana, from Nigeria, uh, a Haitian uh, group, a French group. Uh, in our hall, we had four uh, English-speaking congregations and one Spanish congregation. Later, we had a Bosnian group, a Russian group. So, and some of them would come to our meeting just for the regular meeting. And then later, like in the nighttime, have their own meeting. So yeah, a true diversity where I grew up at kind of reflected that. It was like a United Nations of everybody from all backgrounds, uh, grade school, high school. Um, so the congregation, I, 
I would say maybe 30% African American um and and just a, a con- convergence mix of of everybody else 20% Caucasian 20% uh yet some a- Asian as well so a couple of the elders were uh second generation uh Jehovah's Witnesses who were of Japanese origin um so as diverse as you can get yes yeah, a very diverse congregation yeah that's the way it was in a lot of the congregations in New York. Uh, when I grew up in the Carolinas, it was basically the white car. In fact, they had separate congregations when I was a little kid. So, and so in different places, you, you, you see that. And for a lot of people, that is an attraction because we know, generally speaking, that old saying 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most divided time in the country because everybody mm-hmm. in their own separate churches many times. Yeah. Right. So whatever happened, so you said you um, got in contact with the... Jehovah's Witness that came into the store 20 years later, was she still a witness and she woke up or what was the deal? I reached out to her on Facebook after seeing uh, her and I, I hadn't even really gotten into Facebook until mid 2010s. Um, but then when I messaged her, um, the feeling that I got from her was that she had started going back or was at least mentally mentally into you know still being a jehovah's witness uh she didn't really reveal whether she goes to meetings or uh in fact it didn't get get that far because um it got to a point where in a later conversation i was starting to manifest some concerns when i read about rutherford and some of the history of the organization and she kind of just shut down the the second conversation that we had and that was pretty much the end of it. They haven't heard from her since, but that's the way she ver- verbalized it, basically. So she sounds oh, yeah. like she could have been a walkaway believer. A pomy, as we call it, physically out, mentally in, which exactly. could be a right. lot of out here. She got she got affected by the brothers and the way they treated her instead of really looking into seeing what she was a part of. And then she probably didn't even know to, how to do that. You know? Right. Right? Yeah. But what about your... um? As as time went on after you got baptized, you know, how did you begin to settle into your new life? Um, well, I was single until 1999. Um, so for several years, I regularly went out in field service. I gradually took on more responsibility in the congregation. Um, I worked sometimes full-time jobs, other times part-time jobs. Um, I lived with my dad because... He needed assistance. You know, he was in the 60s, heading towards 70, um, and he was still working quite a bit as an accountant. So I would also assist him with his accounting work. Um, But I would also be in the field service group arrangements on Monday evenings, Thursday evenings. You know, put your name in the board so proudly. Um, My name was starting to get all over that board by 1996, 1997 for taking uh, field service groups out. And I was never a full-time pioneer, um, but I enjoyed the ministry in many cases for what I did. Um, it was, a lot of it was door-to-door at the time. We did do some old-time street work where we'd go to the train stations and so forth and, you know, have our bags of watchtowers and awakes and uh, start sometimes 6, 7 in the morning, get a couple hours in before the formal field service arrangement. And then um, it was just kind of like a consistent routine like that from the mid to the late 90s uh, until I, I met my uh, future wife. 
Well, well, so you really were into it like everybody else, you know, when you with all the things that you're talking about and going out in service. And I think when when you become one of Jehovah's Witnesses, whether you're raised in or born in, this is just the um the schedule that you oh, have. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know. <laughs> and you're so true. busy doing that, you don't have a chance to see all of what you're doing and how you're like that hamster in a wheel. But did you ever finish college when you became one of Jehovah's Witnesses? No, that went on hold. Um, some of the literature I had read, even when I was brand new, like I said, I, I plunged headlong into this and took a lot of this really serious. And they had a new brochure that come out, Jehovah's Witnesses in Education, and it replaced that blue school Jehovah's Witnesses brochure, as I understand. Um, plus, there was different talks that were given. So they were trying to modify their viewpoint to say, oh, it's okay to get supplementary education, but it's not okay to go all the way, so to speak. Uh, you don't need a PhD. We had a district overseer that said PhD stands for pizza delivery. Um, it, it was very confusing, but it seemed like to me, erring on the side of caution and to survive the impending Armageddon, which at that time, we essentially were still under the belief that the generation of 1914 was not going to pass away, 1994, 1995. So I had stopped the junior college, gotten baptized. That year, in 1994, I went back to a computer programming and networking school, um, but the classes were in the evening hours. So I went ahead and initiated, started with that, and wow, did I get the fallback on that, because I started having the friends, quote-unquote, come up to me, start and say, well, David, you know, you're missing meetings. Uh, I had a sister say, you know, you know, the first thing that uh, led so-and-so away was he started missing meetings. So I wound up dropping out of that computer programming networking. And of course, this was pre-internet, 1984, going in 95. And the hardcore perception I got at that time was that, uh, the advanced education was frowned upon. So I would have to find a different means to make a living with what's out here. Um, you know, you get a CDL driver's license and, um, you know, or something in a different field that wouldn't take up my time where I would be missing uh, congregation meetings. And that was probably the, uh, the, the hijacker at that time was for, for me going to school more than anything else. Cause I had elders and servants tell me, uh, direct, David, I would get out of there if I were you. Words like that, or phrases like that. And when you're in the organization at that point, baptized, you know, faithful, quote-unquote, it's, it's so enthralling and so um, impactful. You know, a person like me, I, I took it full throttle when I was 23, 22, 24 years old. You know, what it sounds like to me yeah. is when you, even though you're not raised in or born in, mm -hmm. you're still um, impressionable, um, mm -hmm. losing your mother at such oh, a young yeah. age, um, not having someone to kind of guide you where you should go in the future. You know, like how to chart your life when you're kind of coming out of high school. Exactly. Very much so. I didn't have that guidance and direction. Um like a lot of people have, and because I was kind of an introvert, kind of a, a little more of a, uh, a loner, um, I, I lacked that. Um, 
But I did, even when I was studying, I remember I had some colleagues and coworkers at that convenience store, you know, who would say little snippets to me like, you know, oh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, you got to be careful about them. Or, you know, a couple of them, they outrightly, you know, use the cult word or so forth. And I, at that time in my vulnerable stage, I took to defending them because basically it was like, okay, this is what's given me hope. This is what's given me what I thought was security and peace of mind and a mindset of uh, a hope for the future. Whereas the narrative of what was going on in the world, um, you know, the spin doctrine that the Watchtower does about crime and violence, about, um, you know, you know, the scriptures that we use for, you know, describing the last days, that was something that they, you know, really had drilled into my head. And yeah, it definitely had an impressionability on me. I had a degree of naivety, uh, I would say at the time, no question about it. This is one of Jehovah's Witnesses' um, most embarrassing things to talk about. And it's interesting how, when this conversation about education is brought up, how the typical Jehovah's Witness is trained. I mean, literally trained. When the issue of education comes up, people say higher education. And what they're talking about, they're talking about bachelor degrees, master's degrees, PhDs. That's what they're talking about all the time when they bring up higher education. The way a Jehovah's Witness is trained to spin it is they'll say, well, we, we can go to trade school. Or, or we can get, you know, get your air conditioning, refrigeration, or, or get your welder's license and so forth. But, but people are not talking about that. that that's, that's not what they're talking about. And then they'll try to play it off that you know, everybody don't need to go to college. But we're not talking about everybody needs to go to college. We're not talking about any of those things. And when I talk to people, I try to let people know when you're talking to one of Jehovah's Witnesses about education, you have to present it correctly. Because if you don't, they will spin that bad boy to death. What we're talking about is your religion, your faith, your denomination discourages its most talented, brightest, and gifted children from pursuing higher education at the collegiate level. That's what your religion does. Dave, you had mentioned that during the time that your mother died, you had some friends that were at the wake and they had a different attitude about Jehovah's Witnesses after they saw them. What happened to those friends? Most of them I lost contact with gradually. Um, just due to the nature of the, I think, the enmeshing culture of Jehovah's Witnesses, the things you learn about, you know, being no part of the world. And as you're going along in the study, you start saying, oh, that's Satan's world. So that means that, and this means this, and this means that we can't have the same relationship with them, or that social dynamic is kind of changed because the Watchtower, or because you know, what they spun, spun as the Bible, the Bible says this, the Bible says that, it, it was a gradual cutting off. One of the ones that actually said that to me was a social worker, a psychologist. Um, she is one, one that I saw since I was maybe eh, 10, 11, 12 years old. And I used to travel to her home once every uh, week or two. And uh, at the wake, she actually was, you know, given that different impression 
herself. Um, it didn't mean necessarily she changed her whole view on it, but for her to say that to me was, was like quite a, uh, uh, an eye opener. Um, as did a couple of other, um, friends that, you know, were at the awake. So it, it, these types of things you start hearing about, Oh, you, you know, they want to make a good impression with the world. They want to, you know, their conduct's got to be becoming, they put that up there you know, in both dress and grooming as well as mannerisms, you know, when they're dealing with the public. Um, and, of course, when you're that new around witnesses, not somebody that's, you know, familiar, hadn't grown up with it, um, <clears throat> you don't know that, that a lot of that can be potentially a fake or a put-upon or designed as a attraction type thing, you know, for... Uh, you know, a sales and marketing type of uh, venture, which that's what ultimately you know we were basically were taught to do as as witnesses to always be on you know twenty four seven guard, you know have our guard up as as witnesses. So when you're going into the camp of uh, somebody else that's not a witness to their wake, in order to encourage them, it's high time that they make that impression, especially when there's other people around. Yeah, it's, it's all about the image. It's all about the image. Right. Now, now, Dave, what about, you know, um, did you begin to get into the um, hierarchy structure, like getting appointed servant elder during the time that you were a Jehovah's Witness? Yeah. In 1996, we had a major change in our congregation. Basically, most of the elder body was... Um, either replaced or there was something that happened with one of the elders' kids, that presiding overseer I mentioned before, who had called that sister who introduced me to the witnesses, uh, the B word. Uh, his kids basically all got uh, disfellowshipped for various reasons. So he obviously couldn't be an elder anymore. And they brought in a couple of new uh, ones that were more, I guess you could say, by the book organizational, and they had meetings with us uh, that were single brothers. We would have maybe once every couple months a uh, reminder type meeting after a, meet a regular meeting to reach out, you know, for what op opportunities are there. Um, so naturally, they were pushing for ministerial servant, and eventually, in it was January of 1997, uh, I was appointed a ministerial servant fitting all the criteria, out in the field service, regular meetings, you know, taking the quote-unquote lead, even though I didn't have a formal position. So here I go as a single 24-year-old brother. Wow. So then how long were you a ministerial servant before you woke up from the religion? Or, you know, how did that work for you? I had two stints. As a single ministerial servant, 1997 until November of 1998. Um, I actually was deleted at that point uh, because I had self-admitted uh, to engaging in, I guess we could say, line crossing with my fiance, my uh, future wife. I had dated her about 10 months at the time, and I wrote a two-page letter, left it with the accounts uh, box because I was the account servant also, and basically confessed that uh, we had, I guess, engaged in what was called uncleanness, loose conduct. Um, then they came out with a word I had never heard of before, pornea. And uh, <laughs> we had a, they had brought us to 
one of the uh, elders' uh, apartment buildings he owned, and we had the judicial committee there initially. And basically, I was put on what they call full restrictions and privately reproved, as was my girlfriend, fiancé at the time. So that was the end of my um, uh, ministerial servant duties as a single man. I later got reappointed as a ministerial servant in 2002 um, through 2006 um, and got deleted a second time. That was for the less than 10 hours uh, per month. Had a circuit overseer visit. It was like the honeymoon's over. You're making less than such and such amount of hours, and we can't have that as an example for the congregation. So he hauled me in the back room with the presiding overseer and notified me they were going to make an announcement at the meeting. And sure enough, David Wicklin has been deleted as or is no longer a ministerial servant. They read it off just as if a person's disfellowshipped or dissociated. And of course, people turn around and look at you and stare at you and kind of give you the semi-shun treatment sometimes, you know, depending on the individual witness and how they take it. Yeah, the way they read the letter off is is, is, is designed to literally destroy your reputation. And it, and it will do it that night, that's for sure. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, how did they treat you after that? After you got deleted? Well, the first time in 1998, I wasn't married yet. We were engaged and then eventually did get married. But we had some circle of friends that were very polarizing. Um, There were some that were very supportive. It was kind of a mixed bag. Um, Some that wouldn't even work in field service because they still, when you're on reproof, you could still go out in field service. You can't say the prayer as a a brother. A sister actually has to put a head covering on and say the prayer for the group. Um, So it was extremely awkward. And then, of course, we were in engagement status and then looking at getting married which in May of 1999, uh, we did get married. And that was at uh, the Justice of the Peace in Chicago. We decided, you know, it's time to do this. And then the elders wanted to meet with us, um, even though we were still on this restriction reproof state. And we had another three-hour meeting uh, with them, literally on our wedding day. I kid you not. Okay. And... The end result of that, basically, you know, they wanted to get into the nitty gritty, you know, how far did you go? Did you climax? Uh, Did you actually sleep with one another? No, we didn't sleep with one another. Well, how far did you, you know, total intricacies of details. And the end result of that was uh, they said, David, if you guys hadn't gotten married and he left it at that. In other words, we probably would have been disfellowshipped if we hadn't gotten married. Um, That's what it came down to. So he said, you'll be on restrictions and reproof a lot longer. And I actually remember apologizing to the one elder. I said, Bob, you know, I'm sorry for whatever trouble I caused. He points to the sky in a Tony Morris-like way and says, don't be sorry to me. Be sorry to him. So that was the start of our marriage. And we got... uh, after the convention that summer, the following week, the local needs talk came out, and it was basically about grieving the spirit, and that was geared partially towards us, without naming us, of course, even though people could figure it out, um, to try and embarrass the living heck out of us, um, in order to basically put the squelch on 
okay, if anybody's dating, they can't do it without chaperones or they can't uh, date without, you know, supervision kind of a thing. Um, that That's where it started. And gradually after that, I would say it was about a year or so after that, we came off of restrictions, off of reproof. The first talk I gave after that was, that they gave to me, I should say, was Jehovah does not tolerate sexual immorality. <laughs> so if that wasn't salt on the wound, oh my god, <laughs> that was what they did. And my wife was like, oh my goodness. And like I said, we gradually spiritually recovered. You know, how like a Jehovah's Witness spiritually recovers getting, you know, because we were never disfellowshipped. This wasn't a reinstatement, but yet we were treated by some as if we were, you know, we couldn't comment at meetings for better part of a year and a half. We kind of like want to raise our hand to comment. We were still fully mentally in the zeal mode of wanting to get back in the good graces. Yeah. But and, you know what, David, like when you think about it on your wedding day, somebody is asking you these kind of questions. So are we talking about a kingdom hall wedding? What kind of wedding are we talking about here? We went to the Chicago justice of the peace downtown, a simple justice of the peace marriage. Um, just my wife and I, um, and then when we got done with that, it was later that afternoon, the elders wanted to meet with us for seeing quote unquote, how we were doing. And, you know, basically, you know, I self-confessed that, okay, yeah, in the last six months, yeah, we've had times where we've kind of crossed the lines again. We didn't actually sleep with one another. We didn't go full fledged fornication. But we did touch, we did, you know, what they call fondle, you know, kind of like this was around the time the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky thing was going on in the news. So you had a lot of this language that was coming out that, you know, the American public was, you know, getting used to. And we had circuit overseers, you know, that were quoting some of the things that Bill Clinton uh, was saying, uh, depending on the word, what the word is, is and so forth. Um and referring to this, and then we would even see that in the society's publications, the word pornea. Um, so that's what they were telling us that we were, what we were guilty of technically was pornea. And that put us basically on the ropes again for, you know, 1999 to 2000 to start our marriage off. You know what, you were, you really were in a situation because like when you talk about how all this started, and becoming one of Jehovah's Witnesses, and then you probably had never seen such dysfunction in your life until you got into this group. No, I didn't. I mean, I had relatively peaceful upbringing. I had, you know, non-Jehovah's Witness parents. I was the only one who became, who walked into the organization on my side of the family. And grandparents married 76 years. My parents were married 26 years until my mom passed. So I had a degree of traditional nuclear family structure and at the same time kind of being more of a seclusive or quiet person that played into you know the vulnerability and susceptibility of this. And then the peer pressure of the culture really, you know, laid into me because it's like, okay, you got to do this to remain a, a good, you know, Bible student, good Jehovah's Witness. If you want to stay in the, in the, in the road for life, the race for life. These are the terminologies that we would hear from the elders, COs, the publications. And then as a ministerial servant, when I got up and gave talks, a lot of times I had to reconvey some of these things. So even as an account servant, you know, if we were short of funds, you know, I would have to say something to the effect that, well, 
you know, <laughs> we might have to put out, you know, special requests if we don't, you know, fulfill such and such for the congregation box to pay our bills this month or something along those lines. So it's, it's amazing how the screws are really tightened the more you get into the organization. Oh, yeah, that is so true. Um, let me ask you a question. Um, when, and it's kind of interesting the way it works, when they read you guys off um, as being reproved or when the friends realized that you had been reproved, as you look back now, the friends, what do you think the friends concluded actually happened? That we slept with one another. Yeah. And the reason why is they didn't even announce our names and they didn't say that we were, you know, on reproof because oh, this right. was, yeah, was private, private reproof. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Different than a public reproof. Yeah. Exactly. But when they do the local needs talk and then they figure out, oh, they were married, they're dating, now they're married. Oh, it must be applying to them. They yeah. did the dirty deed. They did the nasty, you know. Yeah. That's, that's how exactly they right. Well, that, what I'm thinking that, of, what I'm thinking of is when you were at the Keenum Hall and the sister had to put the napkin over her head or whatever she <laughs> head covering. You know, so you never thought about showing up late? <laughs> a couple times I did. And actually, it's funny you mentioned that because there were some other, you know, brothers and sisters that, you know, were on some sort of, you know, restriction. Mm -hmm. Maybe they were even disfellowshipped, but they needed to come to the hall for some reason to talk. And they would show up, you know, after the arrangements, so to speak. And sure enough, that's that's how someone would thought. I think I was a glutton for punishment. I I sincerely believe that this was the way to repentance. You know how they teach us about repentance and those steps to repent. I genuinely believe that this was getting my way back to Jehovah, and my wife did too because we were both under the same restrictions and same re reproof mutually. You know, it wasn't viewed as a a separate type of thing, even though they at one time interviewed us separately or, or interrogated us, I should say. <laughs> right. Uh, it, 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 it yeah. just, that's the way it works. Yeah, that's true. I think it's just so crazy how they make you feel so guilty. Oh, yeah. And just for some minor infraction, because I remember when I was in biology and the biology professor said that if it wasn't for the way the chemistry of our bodies and how we were made up, he was like, nobody would be here. You know, and right. so the Jehovah's Witnesses take something so natural and make it so dirty, you know, because here you are courting. It wasn't like you were dating somebody else's somebody else's wife. You know, this is the person that you're dating. And then like to kiss somebody or something like that. It's like, oh, wait a minute. This is wrong. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and and they could see we genuinely loved one another, you know, but they would question that by saying, well, you know, you got to wait until you're after the, the line. You're wait until after you're married. Basically, if you really love her, David, then you'll wait until you're, you know, cross the threshold to do do such and such. That was the inferences and, and direct language, quite frankly, of uh, some of the, the elders uh, in our judicial committees. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, another thing to just uh, further state. Um, I don't know if you remember this when you were going to the Keenum Hall, but I remember growing up and a lot of people were concerned about dying in this system because they told us or they were teaching that when you were resurrected, if you didn't live through Armageddon, that you were going to not be able to be married in the new system. And so it was like nobody wanted to die in this system. And I'm thinking to myself, if you're a human, 
how are you going to not have sex in the new system? Right. And you're a human, you know? That just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> they told us we'd be like the angels in the new world. Yep. Absolutely. In Absolutely. a different realm, basically, in the paradise. And Jeho the rest of it was just, oh, Jehovah's going to fix it. Jehovah's going to take care of that. To sweep any sort of in concern or, or doubt or, or insinuation of that. That's how they sweep in everything under the rug. Jehovah will take care of it in his due time. Exactly. It, it, it makes no sense. I mean, it just literally, and then they tell you that you're going to grow young. So mm -hmm. you don't know if you're going to grow to be 30, 40, 20. What age are you going to be? What's your, what's your status going to be? They make it seem like, you know, you're going to be this version of an individual, but in a new system and live forever and never get old again and just be, have human tendencies, but you can't act on those tendencies. <laughs> It right. just doesn't make any sense. It goes you know? against what's natural. What comes yes, to does. normal, yeah. natural to loving, caring couples and, and humans. It really does. And they stifle any sort of uh, real natural affection. I mean, even yeah, just amongst the brothers. It's just yeah, point. The, 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 their definition of love is totally convoluted versus what real, true love is is it's plastic and fake love and it's it's authoritarian love it's if you don't obey if you don't comply you're gonna die that's that's the gist of it that's mm -hmm. true <laughs> it's terrible so now fast forward to um you know like the more modern times of your life <laughs> the more modern times of your life how did you begin to wake up what was the major crack in your foundation one of the first things i i wanted to really investigate was the sexual abuse allegations that I had started to hear. Um, even going back to the 2000s, we had speakers come down to Chicago from Bethel or district overseers that would say things like, be careful what you click on the internet. And if you click on the name Jehovah, you'll be led right out of the truth kind of a thing. Um, and then we heard one that said, don't watch the Dateline episode or camera panorama episodes. So that was mid-2000s, and it wound up being where most of us did not watch that. We were frightened to death of watching that. Um, we were obedient, essentially. Um, so it wound up where I was working at a law firm in 2012. Um, my marriage was starting to crumble as well. And I was working long hours trying to bail us out of a situation. My wife had come down with uh, cancer, anemia, illnesses herself. Um, and one day, I'm taking a lunch in my downtown Chicago office, and the Candace County verdict comes up. And it says $28 million, you know, punitive lawsuit judgment. And I was floored. I, I couldn't believe you know, against Jehovah's Witnesses, said it very explicitly. Um, and because at the time I was going through a separation, eventually a divorce, um, with all the, you know, what they call unscriptural divorce ramifications that come with that, I didn't really have time with that and with work to fully investigate, but that put that thought in my mind, okay, this is serious. It wouldn't go to this level, um, uh, if it wasn't a very prominent, uh, pervasive issue. And after t 
2014, I wound up moving from Chicago to where I'm at here in Wisconsin. The divorce went through, went through a horrible financial loss, foreclosure, bankruptcy. So I needed a fresh start. Plus, I had to watch my uh, my father and my aunts. Um, and then gradually, I wound up um, getting to a point where I got concerned enough to start researching uh, these court cases and investigating. I came across uh, Debbie McDaniel's book, The Out with Consequences, and in line with that, uh, Trey Bundy's investigation. Um, and then I had a job loss where it allowed me some time to actually finally thoroughly research. This was around 2017. And I was absolutely blown away with how systemic this problem was. And basically, the organization was taking the mindset of defending them at all costs while these these predators are running basically scot-free. They're not being reported to the police. Um, they're not, you know, being investigated. They have their own in-house investigations, but God, if they go to the police, uh, some of these ones are actually being threatened with disfellowshipping. And here I thought all along, my 25 years or so, that this was the most morally upright organization. You know, we stood at corners, inviting people, going door to door in that, soliciting and selling people that we ascribe to the highest standards of morality, to that pinnacle. But yet they have a problem with this child abuse that's just, uh, it's, it's, it's proportionally as bad as the Catholic Church. Um, so I, at that point, that's when I gradually started to just drift away from uh, meetings. I'm like, what sense does it make to go to these things where they're saying this, but yet their conduct and what's going on behind the scenes is completely different than what they promote uh, in public. And that's kind of how things gradually with the rabbit hole opened up, you know, subject by subject to see, you know, what the real truth about the truth is. Dave, let me ask you a question. Uh, when you started uh, seeing these things and started basically putting the pieces of the puzzle together, was there anyone that you could actually talk to about this? Uh, mainly it was through comment sections. Um, you know, I started probing and trying to find out, are these things actually true? Um, I did talk with some of the local elders here um, and some of the other you know, witnesses, and generally they would more or less poo-poo it. It was something that they essentially excused as an isolated incident and that's not representative of the organization. It's an anomaly, an aberration. Um, so I was trying to figure out at that point, as I was kind of, you know, not going to meetings as much. Of course, they're trying to visit me from time to time at that point, five, six years ago, uh, to see what's going on. And I was like, well, this is a serious concern. You guys should be concerned about this. You know, I put, put it directly to those elders here. Um, so, you know, they would ask me, oh, were you yourself ever abused or molested? I says, no, this isn't about me. This is about the principle of the matter. These are our brothers and sisters. We're supposed to love. We're supposed to protect. I put myself out there you know, to take care of them. You know, Jesus said it's supposed to be the least of our brothers that we watch out for. They're the victims. They're the survivors. We're, we love them. Where is 
the love demonstration for this if you're not giving them an opportunity to go to the authorities or you say, you know, through your speaker, J.R. Brown, who puts out a, a, a public uh, message saying, oh, you never prevent them from going to the police, but then behind the scenes, you're turning around and threatening them with disfellowship, threatening them with shunning, using the blackmail tools because they have something behind the scenes that is a lot worse than what it really is. If you guys were honest, why wouldn't you, A, clean it up directly, go through the proper authorities, and then B, make actual genuine apologies, public apologies and private apologies to the ones that have actually been victimized. Because this is who we as supposed professed Christians are supposed to be looking after as those that are the weakest among us, you know? I did, I did this in Chicago when we had people that were getting evicted from their apartments when the rent crisis was happening and uh, buildings were being taken over by landlords throwing out some of the friends. We had to move some of the friends late at night, and I was there. I was there as a moving overseer to help them. That's what we were supposed to do. The same principle applies all the more so in something as intricate and, and personal a nature as sexual abuse of any kind or domestic violence or spousal abuse. None of that should be. It shouldn't be a problem at all. If right. It was. Now, Dave, now, Dave, now what I want to do is that that would be another video as well. But um, I just want to kind of like double click on some of the other things that you may have seen when you were waking up. So you talked about the child abuse cases and that's what woke you up. Um, was there anything else that you seen personally about this religion other than just that the history uh the origins you know how we used to talk about origins are so important when it comes to the holidays and other religions well what were our real origins were they telling the truth you know from headquarters and then when i looked down the rabbit hole and i researched about beth sarim I had barely heard of beth sarim the only time i heard of beth sarim was a little blip in the uh, proclaimers book before but then when I researched, I, it's like, wow, Rutherford actually lived there for 13 years uh, and basically renamed the religion from the San Diego, you know, West uh, posh palatial residence that he was living in. Then he created Beth Shan, which added to it uh, with the two Cadillacs they had. And I never knew about this. Um, and I started looking the rabbit hole further policies like disfellowshipping, where did that come from? Or the blood policy, where did that truly come from? What was the origins? Was it actually scriptural like they told us? Or was it something that somebody else came up with? And then I found out, okay, 1947, they actually condemned excommunication. But then Nathan Knorr and Freddie Franz, who was running the show at the time, a few years later, renamed it as disfellowshipping. I this this was mind blowing to find the history and and origination of a lot of this, and with the blood, I didn't realize you know it went through a whole nother uh, chain of rabbit holes where they actually you know going back to vaccinations they had a period of time they were against vaccinations they were against organ transplants, and I didn't really know the the, the sheer number of ones that had died from refusing uh, emergency medical blood transfusions. Yet here, this is costing people's lives, but they made this doctrine up uh, and they took something that biblically the Apostle Paul and, and the Bible writer Luke 
had no conceptualization of, and they made it essentially a, a Jehovah's Witness law that you can't get uh, whole blood transfusions. Um, but yet they pander now to these fractions. So it, I, I, the rabbit hole started running real deep after I looked down. We'll put it that way. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to uncover there, a lot to unpack, because a lot of people, they have one thing that wakes them up. A lot of people don't even have anything. They just don't like the people. And the next thing you know, they're not going to the meetings, but they still believe it. And then, of course, if somebody comes and knocks on their door or says, hey, look, brother, so-and-so's here. He's a circuit overseer. They can rekindle their love for the Watchtower. But um, so in this video, it's just just helpful for people that's listening to your story to realize that when you when you come into something and you don't do your research or if you see the things that you are seeing or experiencing, you should start to investigate what you're in because there's a whole lot of stuff that you're going to find out. That's that's one of the biggest things about us, you know, helping people to share their story, to see that, hey, look, there are people that are born in, raised in, and like you, you just happen to be, you, you were still young and impressionable, but you came in. And to show that the witnesses basically got you at the worst or the most down time of your life, when you were, when you were at the most down in your life, this is when they came around and they were able to take advantage of that. So, yeah, so it's, there's a lot. I mean, when, when we think about the, the, the experiences that so many Jehovah's Witnesses have when they're waking up, everybody comes to the same conclusion. I checked out the history and I began to unravel the teachings and, you know, and then it just, it just, it's like a snowball effect to you unearthing the real truth about this religion. Exactly. The, I, eye-opening just doesn't stop it just it, it's amazing how deep it, it all runs when you look at the history going back to russell and the pyramids like uh, jt alluded to earlier yeah how do you feel like like i know how i felt when i found out that this wasn't the truth you know how did you personally feel about knowing and learning that you didn't have to do all this stuff that they told you that you had to do I was gradually relieved, um, but I was also quite angry and upset that 20 plus years of my life had been taken, um, that it was hijacked or to an extent I allowed myself in a position to be hijacked, if you will. Um, but then I gradually came to realize, look, you know, I, I guess I kind of am to a point where I'm philosophical about it all now. Um, I... <laughs> You know, I don't want to hate the witnesses, but at the same time, um, it's something that I feel I have to be very much on guard because they are taught to view others essentially as prey, you know, rightly disposed for everlasting life. That's their definition of it. Um, but I, I went through my stages of, of both relief, liberty, um, and upsetness. It was kind of a, a roller coaster. Um, to get to this point here four years later where have a me measure of peace. And, I mean, I don't even know what their, quote-unquote, standing or viewpoint is of me. And I really don't care. For a while, I did care. But now it's like, you know, we only have the, we're only under the control and power that we ultimately give them or allow them to have. So it took 
a long time for me to get those tentacles out and look outside from outside the bubble um, and kind of rationalize and, and, and calm down about everything and realize that, uh, okay, if I got duped, hoodwinked, bamboozled, it is what it is. You know, I still got a measure of youth, a measure of future in, in, in me where I can, uh, you know, build my life again after everything that's transpired um, and, and, and rebuild and move forward. That's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah. yeah. You brought out some excellent points for all of our uh, viewers and everything that they need to consider and see how you do it. And that's the whole thing. Seeing how people come in, leave, and keep moving. That's really the whole thing. Yeah. What was one of the first things that you did to put your life back into order after you discovered that this wasn't the truth? For me, I actually, that's where you used to see me a lot in the comment sections. It was actually, to me, uh, cathartic and therapeutic to kind of release my uh, feelings and my uh, defenses, if you will, um, of what had been turned. Um, so for a while, I was kind of in that mode because time allowed me to be in that mode. Um, gradually getting myself together, you know, doing things to try and take care of myself where I'm not, you know, stressing myself out about that or having that paranoia of uh, irrational, morbid fear that uh, the organization has, you know, gradually stepping away from that and replacing that with, um, you know, appreciation for daily life, you know, taking care of myself, eating right, uh, getting some exercise. Um, these are things that, you know, have helped me to uh, move forward and still are, you know, setting goals, you know, setting um, uh, directions for myself and learning how to become an adult again. Because, you know, we were in that arrested development mode. We were stymied and stifled. So much of it was under the control because we believed you know, Armageddon or the Great Tribulation was coming the day after tomorrow or later this week. And, you know, releasing ourselves from that mindset to getting into a, a productive and constructive mindset where, hey, we can we can help one another, you know, help others that, you know, the world is not wicked as we, you know, we're taught to, to view it. We can uh, mingle, you know, gradually with uh, others, even family members that are non-witnesses. In fact, that's exactly what we should do. That's the humane and conscientious and, and uh, normal uh, and responsible way to, 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 to move forward. Um, so that's kind of the steps that I've taken. Yeah. yeah. And you that's also an said point. that you were you also said that you were affected and impacted greatly financially after you had, you know, divorced your wife and everything was as a result of being a Jehovah's Witness, probably no doubt. How did you recover? financially i'm still going through the recovery process at age 49 oh, yeah. yeah it's 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 still a road to go um i mean right now with what i do as independent contractor i'm working six seven days a week um i had a job loss i had some other things happen that were not directly witness related you know people can lose jobs for very or careers for various reasons a career i had at a law firm i thought i was going to have for life unfortunately was phased out as it was for a number of my colleagues. Um, so it's kind of taken me back to where uh, I've kind of had to reapprise my situation. And in the midst of this, in the last three years, I lost my wife. She, she was, you know, technically or legally 
uh, divorce. But when we were in the organization, we were still viewed as scripturally bound to the marriage. So that had a twist on it for a while. She passed in 2018. I made my one video partially about that. Uh, and then my father you know, just passed last year. Uh, he was battling dementia and Alzheimer's. So I kind of had to take some time to just um, take care of those, you know, family uh, issues. Because I think it, it really uh, affected me, you know, mentally. Um, and yeah, my income got interrupted. Um, it's something where I've been through a bankruptcy before, but I also worked at a bankruptcy law firm. And it's not the end of the world. It's really a fresh start. Uh, if a person needs to hit the reset button, Donald Trump did it several times, as did many others. But it's it's a matter of if a person has to use a certain financial tools and toolbox for uh, loss mitigation from a devastation situation of, you know, life happens. Um, you know, there were debts involved from the past and such. And, you know, things had to be uh, dealt with. So, you know, it's moving forward, um, you know, taking the steps to move forward where i'm i'm really at right now and i've got a ways to go i mean it's just yeah it, it's excellent it's a, advice yeah it's a path it takes that a while. doesn't it's stop like, it takes time it takes yeah. time to get yourself together now what about therapy have you ever thought about doing therapy have you ever done therapy have not done direct therapy i like i said earlier i would say my therapy was or catharticism was uh you know often you know with the uh, xjw community uh commiserating with you know similar feelings and the shock of it all uh, yeah, but as far as seeing somebody to you know relay this, and it's been talked about before. You know, there's very few ones like a Stephen Hassan or a John Jalolich that uh, you know, or a Bonnie Zeman that really understand the dynamics of what we've come out of mm-hmm. uh, in waking up from a cult. Um, but I would say therapy for me is you know getting exercise gradually mingling with with more people you know getting to know new people that i would have been kind of alienated from before in my jw mindset um as far as formally seeing somebody yeah i mean i'm open to that i think i think it would be good for me to sit down with a a social worker or psychologist as i you know had even when i was a, a teenager growing up with, for some of my challenges so yeah you know and, and the other thing too um David, is when you think about it, sometimes people, they may not need a therapist in some instances where they might just be able to use a life coach that could just help them to navigate the waters to find out, you know, where they need to be in their life after, you know, being in an organization such as the Watchtower. Because some people, they may not have been traumatically impacted, but they just need somebody to put them back on the right course of life. Like I got off this course. I didn't get a chance to get my degree. Did you get your degree eventually? I did not because I was in totally different fields um, and just my time occupation largely. Um, but it's something I'm considering doing as far as going back to uh, college. It's never too late. Yeah. So it's certainly an option. A small town here, they got a nice community college as well as a university. They even started offering an MBA program. So, okay. Uh, Oof. Have you thought yep. about certifications? Um, possibly. It depends. I mean, like I said, I've already had my CEO license, which I've used for a long time. And with what I'm doing for independent contracting right now, it's it's actually ramping up quite a bit. So it's keeping me sure. quite quite busy. So yeah, 
yeah, that's that's important. But it, it's it's also to 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 build myself up, you know, as a person. And as you you use the word, you know, to re-navigate uh, myself so that you know I can save and build for retirement here and, and yeah. take care of myself uh, here. You know, as I move into my fifties here. Yeah, because you know something too. Did you know that there's some colleges and universities that will allow you to get a certification, take certain classes that will give you a certification, and then you could, you know, enter this work, um, whatever the field of a certification that you're trying to get. But you can also take those same classes and convert them and use them towards the degree. So they're 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 allowing you to get more mileage from the classes that you take. Yes. Like you adults, know. adult continuing ed and so forth. Absolutely. Well. Life credit, credit from, from life work experiences and morphing and meshing all that, which it should be done because a lot of employers, or even if you start in your own business, you know, your experience, you know, what you've learned from it and what you can apply is very, mm-hmm. very important. So. We did that. We did yep. prior learning experience. Sure sure we got credit for prior learning experience and just a whole different, you know, when you, um, the way it was explained is when you are going back to school as an adult, they realized that a lot of people could teach the classes that they had to take. And so a lot of uh, colleges and universities will give um, adult education, people that's coming back to school for adult education they will allow them to apply a, a certain amount of classes towards prior learning. And I think they, they will allow you to get up to 30 credits for doing that. Nice. And it's worth it. It's, it's, it's very much Absolutely. worth it. Absolutely. Yep. It's worth looking into. So, yeah. yeah. I have visited the local community colleges here. So that's that's probably my next step is kind of so. the offer and, and, you know, growing off of that. So we'll, we'll see what, what the near future holds. Yeah. Looking forward to it. And not to not to mention, don't forget to use the credits that you already have. Right. Because if you already took some classes, then you can still, you know, keep those classes. It's, it's not like being a Jehovah's Witness where, oh, you pioneered 10 years ago. The pioneer uh, credits that you got from 10 years ago, they're no they're no longer effective or any or any good. You can't use them. Whereas when you took a class in college, they still give you that credit, yeah. you know, years later, you know. Yeah. You can get the transcripts from the previous college I went to in Chicago and, and transfer that. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not yeah. like the theocratic ministry school, the, the school you never graduate from, like they used to tell us. <laughs> Ridiculous. Isn't that crazy? crazy? But you got any final thoughts that you want to give to the audience about anything? Well, just kind of wrapping it up. Um, and this can apply to, you know, others that are in situations like I've been in the past. Um if you're in a susceptible, you know, type situation or where everything seems to be uh, crumbling at some point in life, um, take a step back and, you know, also talk with somebody that, you know, you can, can really trust. Uh, I think I lacked that, you know, at the, the time I was going through with my mom's loss and so forth. My dad and I weren't real close, uh, very, very small family and such. Um, somebody that can, you know, really, you know, objectively be a friend and help you through a trying time because that can keep a person from getting enmeshed or entangled into a high control group of any kind uh, because they prey on uh, moments of weakness and vulnerability 
And um, going forward, you know, through just the learning experience of this, I, I would say you've got to be philosophical about it. I, I have moments where I've gotten down and depressed, you know, whether it's because of the uh, shunning or lack of communication. But then I, I kind of turn on the switch mentally where I see the pluses and benefits of not being under that control and that force um, and antagonism, which is really uh, beneficial. And to use the the, the, the the time we have to, um, you know, to grow ourselves, you know, whether it's going back to school, as we talked about, it could be as simple as reading a book, uh, which I've had a chance to do here, uh, you know, reading a number of different uh, old-fashioned hard hardcover books uh, about whether it's Jehovah's Witness organization or just sometimes just decompressing altogether. Sometimes we need to get completely away from uh, our background, I think, and, and engage in, uh, you know, recreational activities that are really uh, enjoyable and take the edge off. So that's what I'd recommend for people move, moving forward. Do what you love, you know, find your passion and you know, move forward with uh, a purpose that even when things seem really down or moments you seem hopeless, you know, give, give yourself a chance to reach out, um, you know, that things do get better despite the troughs and valleys that we've gone through in life and the abuse that we've had, um, you know, being part of the Watchtower organization. Yep. There is light at the end of the tunnel. No question about that. Yeah. I, I, I have to say, Dave, I, I think that you are really the type of person that people need to see because it's important that people see that whatever they're going through, that is actually the process that you're going to have to go through. Um, there is no easy way out. There is no easy way out of this organization. But you can get out and you can make it. And so I'm going to tell you, Dave, I'm, you know, we had a chance to see a number of your interviews that you've done. And we, we've said we have got to let him share his story with other people. And I always want to say thanks so much for coming on, man. I mean, just thank you for coming on and sharing your story. And I thank you both, uh, JT and Lady C, for that opportunity. And hopefully my... Uh, you know, conversion slash deconversion story and, and the dynamics will help a lot of people um, as to what's involved, what to avoid, and what to look out for. It benefits a lot of people, hopefully. That's absolutely. my prayer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because everybody can, we all, uh, as they say, fed from the same trough. <laughs> right. We all came in through different channels and yeah. we're all kind of like, you know, leaving in the same manner. So it's really nice to see so many people that have gone through the fire, as it were, but are able to reunite with other people on the other side. I, I really feel like when we first left this organization many years ago, we didn't have this many people in the ex-Jehovah's Witness community. In fact, we felt like we were just totally out here by ourselves. There was no Internet the way we see it today. Um, but now it's like everywhere you look, there's someone you can hang out with. Um, I have a monthly book club with extra Jehovah's Witness women. We get together, have a great time. We've been doing this since the pandemic. And it's just like, you know, we go from talking about the book to now we always manage to get in the discussion about what our life was like in the organization and how exciting we are to have gone through that fire, and now we're over here, out, and and we're we're in, indulging in educational books, 
that we don't have to study the watchtower together. We're just doing some other things, you know. So it is really nice being able to just reach out and 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 talk to somebody that is from our background and not have to explain to people, you know, why we act a little different than the average person that you see. You know, because when people meet us, they be like, I noticed something different about them. They don't seem like they, you know, like like the rest of our friends. They seem a little bit different, mm-hmm. you know. But when you get with Jehovah's Witnesses, ex-witnesses, they know where you've been, you know. So sometimes people find that little comfort level when they're dealing with uh, fellow uh, people that's been through the same war as yeah. it were, you know. So again, Dave, we want to thank you so much for being on the platform, being on our program. And we look forward to seeing everyone else in the next episode. This has been Lady C. And this has been JT. This program was sponsored by Critical Thinkers.